Would you join me? Uh, Most of you already know where we're going. We are in the book of Romans. We started that in January. I think it was the first Sunday in January. I might be wrong on that. Uh, At least we laid groundwork for this uh, book in the first Sunday of January. Romans chapter 7, if you would join. Romans chapter 7. So if you've been here recently, you know this is new chapter. And so new material, sort of. But it kind of is going to continue in the same flow. And uh, as I've said, the last, I think, two weeks in particular, uh, this week's passage, I keep thinking, boy, now this week's passage is, is the one that's going to be tough for us to understand because we're human and God's word is spiritual. Uh, and then I get to the next one. It's like, okay, that's the tough passage. And so uh, I can tell you about today, uh, so I mean this, so I'm, I'm saying this to encourage you, you're not going to get anything out of the passage from me unless you ask the Lord, Lord, show me, and then his Holy Spirit has to show it to you. Uh, But it is a great passage, and so I'll not be able to do it justice, but hopefully you'll take it and home and think about it and apply it to what we've already covered, and it will affect us moving forward as well. Going back to Romans chapter 5, we won't turn there, but Paul has been pounding into us This truth, see, ready? The only way for us to be justified, to be declared righteous by God and to go to heaven, so listen carefully, you need to evaluate your life right from the opening sentence. The only way for us to be justified is by faith. Has to be by faith. The only way to go to heaven is by putting your faith, your trust, maybe the better, stronger word, your trust in what Jesus did on the cross to count for you. And once you've done that, you have what the Bible calls eternal life. And there's a lot of ramifications to that. I'm going to hit a couple of things right here in my introduction that somebody may hear just a little sentence and you don't like what I'm saying, maybe because of some religious training or religious ideals that we have. But I want to challenge you. Please see if what I'm saying is accurate from the scripture because I'm going to say some things that I wouldn't say on my own. For starters, it won't be on the screen, but I hope you have Romans 7 open in front of you. You probably can see chapter 6. Verse 14 has a pretty powerful statement. Here's what it says. To the Christian, for sin will have no dominion over you. Sin will have no dominion over you. And then here, here comes the statement. Since you are not under law, You're not under law. I haven't used these three words I'm going to use in our introduction yet. And those of you who've been in church a long time, I was wondering when he was going to get to this because we've been dancing around it for a long, long time. When Paul says that you as a Christian are no longer under the law, under the rules and the regulations and the penalties of the law. Now somebody just heard, we we don't have to obey God's laws. Well, hang on and listen to the whole message today. But when we hear that, what Paul is saying is, hey, Christian, you have what the theologians would say is liberty in Christ. And we could give a lot of layers to that, that idea. What exactly is liberty in Christ? This is not a full statement. I'm just going to throw it out there. Here's, here's kind of what it is. You ready? Liberty in Christ, if you're a true Christian, means you can never, never lose your salvation. No matter what. And if you hear that and say, yeah, but what if I do? No, 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 it's called eternal life. You can never lose it no matter what you do. And Paul hammered away at that. Hey, you didn't do anything to get saved. The only thing you did was trust Jesus. And Jesus, what he did on the cross is so powerful, it can pay for all the sins you committed before salvation and all the ones that you commit after salvation. And Paul says, that means we're no longer under the law, but we're under grace. And so I can't lose it. This is great. I like this. And now Paul knows with that, he needs to round out that teaching by covering two ideas that are the extremes that many people want to deduce from. You can't lose it. Hey, we didn't save ourselves. I can never, it's not up to me. So extreme number one, he's already combated, and you all know the terminology I'm getting ready to use. It's this idea of a license to sin, because that's what some people hear. 
So you're telling me once I put my faith and trust in Jesus, no matter what I do, I can go out and live this way and this way and this way. I can't lose my salvation. I'll still go to heaven. That's what you're telling me. I'm telling you, if you really did put your faith and trust in Christ, that's the key. I don't know physically. I can't tell by looking. But if you really did that, yes, you will never lose it. Look at verse number 1 of chapter 6. So Paul has to combat license to sin. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue the idea of unbroken pattern, lifestyle, wallowing in sin? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? God's grace is so great that no matter how much we sin, he still saves us and lets us go to heaven as long as we're trusting in Jesus. So should we then just go have lots of sin so that grace may abound? Chapter 6, verse 15, words it similarly but a little bit different. Look at chapter 6, 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law? Because we can, we're not going to lose our salvation, are we to sin? And so Paul has to combat that, and I can't re-preach chapter 6, but here's kind of the summation. You will not wallow in sin because you cannot wallow in sin because you died to sin. Watch this, sin is no longer your master. So, you have liberty, but we'll know that you're a true Christian if you don't just go have a continual, habitual, lifestyle, unbroken pattern of sin. If that's your life, you're not a true Christian. Now, you're not stopping sinning to be saved, but if you really did get saved, then your life's going to change. It's going to change. And so he combats a license to sin. Here's the key. It's not your master anymore. I mean, I, I picture tomorrow you go home from work, right? Get home from work, check the mailbox, and there's something from London. Parliament's met. And they've decided to mail notifications of a $1,000 tax on every household in America. And you're like, Great Britain's putting a $1,000 tax on our house? They want it by the end of the month? What in the world? On what grounds? It used to be our colony. To which we answer, yeah, we used to be your colony. We don't pay taxes anymore. You're not over us anymore. We don't have to do that. We have a new leadership here we're our own we don't pay you no offense to great britain if you're from britain we love you and all that but we're just not paying you any taxes anymore you're not our boss anymore okay paul's wanting us to know license to sin no christian sin is not your boss anymore it is not your master so in chapter six here's what paul does we use this word sanctification you say what is sanctification sanctification is once i'm saved i'm not only saved from the penalty of sin because of what jesus did on the cross But what he did is so powerful that in us he starts a process where we will become more and more like Jesus. We will become more and more like Jesus. Our life will change. And he he showed us three words. Can't re-preach them, but I want to touch them. You ready? Here's the three words. Here's the three ideas. No. Christian, do you know that sin is not your master anymore? Number two, consider. You can know my theology is good. But in the moment when sin is tempting, like this afternoon. Your favorite sin is going to tempt you before the week is over. The one that's whipped you many times in the past. Here it comes again. But you as a Christian say, I know that you're not my boss and my master. I don't have to yield to you. Before I had no power. Now I have power. And then you consider it so. You are not my boss. I am not obeying you. And then there's a third word Paul gave us. He says, be presenting the members of your body, your mind, your eyes, your ears, your mouth, your hands, your feet. Be presenting those to Christ. So be busy serving Christ so that you have no time to serve sin. And in that process, you will be becoming more and more like Christ. It will be happening. No, sin is not your master. Consider it so and then be busy yielding and presenting the members of your body for righteousness. And then we come to chapter 7. So if chapter 6 is Paul showing us the right way to be sanctified, can I say this? What we're getting ready to go into is the wrong way to become more and more like Christ. Who knows the next letter word that starts with the letter L? We have liberty in Christ. Some hear about liberty and they hear license to sin. That's wrong. Paul says, God forbid, never let it be so. By no means is that the truth. And so we don't want to go way over into license to sin. But the other extreme, oh, we're to become like We'll become more and more like Christ. I know how to do that. I will put this in my life. What's the other extreme? Legalism. And so what is legalism? Again, just like liberty, we could give a lot of definitions. I'm going to offer mine. This is not all-encompassing. Here it comes. So what is legalism? By the way, this may be subtle. It's still in us. This is still in us. It's in most of us. It's in me. I've got to watch it. 
So what is legalism, Jeff? Legalism is, I want you to taste this. It's important. Legalism is a belief that we become holy by keeping God's, or I'm sorry, by keeping religious laws. Legalism is an honest belief. Now there's two parts. You see it on the screen already. Legalism is a subtle belief. The way I become holy is by keeping religious laws. And there's somebody sitting right there right now. If you're a thinker, and I hope you are, and I always want you, my pastor always encouraged, be checking what I'm saying. Don't just take my word for it. I don't want you to take my word for it. I hope somebody's sitting there right now saying, is he implying that's not how we become holy? We don't become holy by keeping religious laws? No. That's not how you become holy. Another aspect, as you see on the note, is part of legalism would say this. It's a belief that we put ourselves in God's favor by keeping religious law. If I do these things, God will really love me. Legalism. If I do this list of things, and I've got passages of Scripture, and it's in the Bible, and there, and there, and there. And Paul himself, when he, he's going to get to chapter 12, and he's going to start laying out some things we need to do in the Christian life. And so we need to get this list of rules and laws, and that's how we become holy. No, it isn't. What I'm about to say is very subtle, but it's a slight difference. But I'm going to tell you biblically, not an all-encompassing definition. You say, then what is holiness? Listen. Holiness is when Christ in me aligns my body, soul, and spirit to please God with my whole person out of love for God and man. It goes beyond a list of rules and it's not limited to the body's externals because I'm going to tell you something. Legalism stresses externals. It stresses. Legalism thinks, I'm holy because of this. In fact, I can tell who's holy. Oh, y'all, you've got the Christian haircut. I see you've got on the Christian pants and the Christian shoes. And we shop in the Christian store at the Christian section of that. I see you've got the Christian color in your hair. Ooh, they don't have the Christian color in their hair. They're not godly. They apparently haven't got the memo about the rules. Legalism. Legalism. It measures spirituality by externals. That's legalism. I can tell who's spiritual. And I'm spiritual when I'm doing these things. And you're spiritual when you fit into my list of things. And I got a Bible for some of them. And others, good men and well-intentioned women have taught us that in 2017, these are the rules. Legalism. Warren Wiersbe gives us a good list of devastating effects of legalism. I'm going to hit him fast. He says, legalism often leads to pretenders. Pretenders. They hear the rules and they pretend. Oh, here they come. Let me act like this. Now, when you're away from them, you're a whole, you're a whole different person. But I've got to act like this. So you start pretending. Inside, you know you're not that. Number two... Often legalism leads to people collapsing under the pressure of the demands. I think, I wonder, this is again, I'm just thinking out loud. I wonder how many true Christians are away from the Lord because they're burned out. And they kind of look like they've quit for a period of time. And the reason is somebody put a burden on them and they emphasized all the externals and the legalism and they just couldn't live up to all the expectations. It just weighed them down, it beat them down. Finally, they just collapsed. But before that, here's what they did. It's the third devastating effect. Before they reached that point where they admitted, I'm a pretender and I'm about to burn out myself, they're real hard on everybody else in the meantime. They're judging, judging, judging. Catch them three years later and it's like, what happened to you? Hey, it's all a hoax. I just quit. Like, was it not real? Maybe it wasn't real. We saw 1 John 2, 19 last week. Maybe they just couldn't bear up the weight of some false teaching that they listened to and they need to learn Romans 6 and 7. So with that in mind, would you join me in today's passage? Romans 7, verses 1 through 6. Verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, the idea of brothers and sisters? Do you not know, brothers? For I'm speaking to those who know the law. Do you not know, brothers, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Only as long as he lives. 
And then he gives an analogy to illustrate that point. For a married woman, some of you, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, he's going to bear that out and go a little deeper, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. The key was he died. And so he's been building this principle based off of this wife and husband and everything's from this wife's perspective and in in this case verse 1 through 3 the husband dies now he's going to switch it a little bit because it's not going to be the husband figure that dies he's going to switch it here's his point husband and wife but if he dies she's free to get remarried verse 4 likewise in the same way my brothers you he's talking to Christians also have died. You died. I thought the husband died. Well, that was the principle. That was the analogy. Now I'm going to show you the spiritual application. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law. When did I do that? How did I do that? You have died to the law through the body of Christ. Why did he do that? So that you may belong to another. To him who has been raised from the dead. Obviously that's talking about Christ. Christ died so that he have us marry himself. Why in the world does he want us to be married to him? Verse 4 at the end makes it very clear. In order that we may bear fruit for God. There's the purpose of this. So we will be bearing fruit for God. And now he's going to rewind. He's going to have us revisit back before we were saved. He says, for while we were living in the flesh, and we'll have to define that term, the flesh. He says, back then, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work. So we have these sinful passions in us before we come to Christ, and they're aroused by the law. The law is arousing our sinful passions. Well, that law must be wicked and sinful. No, it's not. But that arousal of our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members, our members of our body, to bear fruit. You say, something did come out of our union with the law, right? Our marriage to the law, yeah, something came out of it. He says, to bear fruit for death. The fruit was sin. You say, law, God's perfect law, plus us, yeah, equaled sin and death. It's not good. But now, Christian. We are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. Obviously, he's talking about our former husband. He held us captive, but we're released from that. Why? Catch this line. So that we serve. And we're released from the law so that we don't ever have to worry about it. Yeah, you don't have to worry about it, but you're released from the law so that we Christians, here's how you'll know a Christian, we serve in the new way of the Spirit. Not the old way of the written code. The written code. Three things to notice out of our text. Number one is a principle of law. We'll not spend long on this. Principle of law. You see, verse one again, do you not know, brothers? I'm speaking to those who know law, who know the law. I think what he's talking about here, and this is a debating point. I'm not going to get bogged down. Some would say, is he talking about Roman law? He's writing to the Romans. Is he talking about Greek law? Is he talking about biblical law? Is he talking about laws of marriage? I'm going to tell you, I think he's just saying there's a, there's a principle of law that I'm going to have you look at. And then he is going to apply, and I'm going to spend just a minute on a secondary point. What he has to say about husbands and wives is not the main point of this text. So this is not the all-inclusive passage that has to do with husbands and wives. It's him making a point, so he's going to use husbands and wives. But here's his thought. Y'all know how law works, right? You know law. Whether it be Roman or Greek or the laws of marriage. God invented marriage and so God defines the laws of marriage and Jesus supports those in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 and other places. And Paul adds some fresh light that's not even covered here but he reinforces this somewhat in 1 Corinthians 7 
I don't even know why I'm saying all those things. Somebody later on will have a problem. They'll go back and listen and say, what were those passages? And they'll look them up and maybe it'll save me a phone call. Anyway. Look at verse 1. Do you not know, brothers, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Only as long as he lives. Here's the point. If someone dies, not only do they no longer actively break the law's rules, but they're no longer under the law's penalties. They're released from being under the law. When a person's dead, they're no longer under the law. The law doesn't apply. The penalties of the law will not be placed upon them. MacArthur kind of words it this way. He says, listen, no matter how serious a criminal's offenses are, you say, but what if they did something like really, really bad? No matter how serious a criminal's offenses may be, once he dies, he is no longer subject to prosecution and punishment. Here's what it means. Picture how silly it would be for a judge and a prosecution and over here's the defense and okay, go ahead and bring the defendant in and in here comes a gurney and there's a bag and they unzip the bag and they take out a corpse and they kind of prop him up and they strap him in and somebody, they're spraying Febreze all around because we're in the third week of trial here because this guy committed a crime. Now he was killed in the act of the crime but we're going to put you on trial and it doesn't look good. You're either going to be sent to prison for life, I've already did, but you're going to be sent to prison for life or we're going to send you to the electric chair. Oh no, he's really scared of the electric chair. Why? No, you don't even do the trial. There's no point. He's dead. The law doesn't apply anymore. He points out how Lee Harvey Oswald, when he was murdered by Jack Ruby, and that just ensured Lee Harvey Oswald would never stand trial for the murder of John F. Kennedy. Now, Oswald's been tried in the court of of public opinion. I know that. But he hasn't stood a legal trial. They just buried him. Now, verse 2 and 3, what we find is Paul's going to bring this analogy a little closer home and he uses I think the best example to get across he says how can I show people that there's these laws that are binding but once death occurs it releases the person from the law he says, I know it's husbands and wives marriage is the most binding contract two humans can enter into I'll not back up this statement but if you want to go to Matthew 19 it will back this statement up Husbands and wives, listen. If you're thinking about getting married, listen. You say, well, what if I've already that and that? I'm telling you where you're at today, listen to what Jesus has to say. Jesus demands that husbands and wives be faithful to their marriage vows. Catch, I said faithful to their marriage vows, not just faithful in their marriage vows. Faithful in their marriage vows sounds like, okay, as long as for a period of time. Afterward, I can do, no, faithful to your marriage vows. That's what Jesus is commanding us. But what if it isn't easy? Jesus assumes it's not easy. Hey, we're human beings. Now, there's probably that one or two couples, and y'all never fight. You lie. You lie. Well, we're so glad that you and Deanna never fight. Please. Do you know how often I'm wrong? See how I did that? See what I did there? Take note, guys. Right. You want to be right? What is it, Gary? You want to be right or you want to be, you want to be happy? <laughs> you want to be right or you want to be happy? So Jesus demands husbands and wives be faithful to their marriage vows. Not going to be easy. Listen, it's not an easy thing, but it's the right thing. Why? Husbands and wives, listen. Our marriage relationships are supposed to be pictures of God's permanent covenant with his people. God is married to Israel. Israel has been unfaithful to God. God stays faithful. Our point today, Christians, we are part of this thing called the church. We're married to Jesus. I've never been as faithful to the Lord as I should be, and you're like me. And combined, we have a lot of unfaithfulness to our husband, but he's always faithful to us. And Jesus says, I know it's going to be hard. It's not going to be easy, but you stay in it and you stay faithful. And yet, the point of verses 2 and 3 is the following. Listen carefully. It is clear that the union of a man and his wife is broken once death occurs to either one of them. Once death occurs to either one, the marriage union is broken. They are no longer married. I mean, officially, technically, you know, Deanna and I have been married 26 years. And she's been faithful to me and I've been faithful to her. And by God's grace, that's our intention is to stay faithful. But if I were to die, 
I mean, officially, that, at that moment, she has fulfilled her obligation, kept her marriage vows. She's kept that. She's been faithful to the marriage vows. At that moment, she is free to remarry according to the passage. I hope she don't bring a date to my funeral, but I'm just going to tell you. At, literally, at that moment, praise the Lord, you are faithful. And I want to be the same way, faithful. Number two. Not only is there a principle... But there's a promise of life. There's a principle of law and there's a promise of life. Catch this. Life from death. You say, right, life after death. That is true. But there's a, principle, there's a promise here of life from death. Look at verse number four. All that whole analogy, husband's wife's marriage, permanence, until death comes in, he says, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law. You died to the law. How? Through the body of Christ. Just as a man or a woman, let's focus on the woman because that's the analogy he uses. So Jeff, what if a woman finds herself married to a husband that doesn't bring out the best in her? We're going to talk about that. But I'm going to tell you the whole point of the analogy is this. A lot of women find themselves in a marriage to a man who doesn't bring out the best in her. The point is this. Sinners, all of us were born sinners. We were born as sinners in a marriage. You're born. You say, I didn't sign up for this. You were born under the law, under the law, the laws of God. You know the Ten Commandments. Those are just representative of many, many more. Next time I preach on this, we'll talk about 600 and some. I won't go over them all, but there's 600 and some commands that the theologians tell us. But let's just say the Ten, the, the Ten Commandments represent. You're born under those rules, under those regulations, and the penalties that go with it. You're born married to the law. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you, the law doesn't bring out the best in you. The law brings out the worst in you. And if you hear that and say, are you implying as a preacher that God's law, God's word is wicked and sinful? No, I'm not. I'm implying that our sin nature coupled with the law's perfection is not, it's not a good mixture. It's not good for us. It doesn't bring out the best in us. It brings out the worst. We're not compatible. And so somebody hears that and says, well, I know what I'm going to do when I'm not compatible. I'm just going to leave my wife or I'm just going to leave my husband. We're in a rough patch and we're not compatible. You know what the Bible calls that? If she leaves, we're not compatible. Irreconcilable differences. Yeah, go and get married to somebody else and you're called an adulteress. Or he's an adulterer. Not an option. So the whole point of the passage is we sinners are born married to the law and if you're sitting here today and you've never put your faith and trust in Christ and here's your solution. Well, I'm just going to get a divorce from the law for irreconcilable differences. Hey, preacher, listen. The law's not happy and I'm not happy. We're just not a good mix so I'm just going to break it off. Listen, if you try to take that to judgment day, if this is your plan, you stand before God what the Bible calls the great white throne judgment and this voice like thunder starts Speaking to you and these eyes of fire, you will never do this. But if, this, if you think this is your plan, as God opens the books and the books are read, those books are all the things you've ever done, all the ways you've ever broken the law. If your plan is, oh, I, I see where you're, time out, I see where you're going. Uh, I need you to understand. I don't want to be accountable to how I broke the law. Excuse me? Yeah, I don't want to be accountable to that. I don't know if you heard, I opted out of the law. I divorced the law. I just kind of made that on my own. I decided not to do that. If that's your plan, you're dreaming, you will be held accountable. Everything you've ever done that has broken the law, you've been unfaithful to your husband. You are the wife. We are the wife. We're born in a relationship with law, and we break the law all the time. It's perfect. It's righteous. It's holy and good. There's nothing wrong with it, but it doesn't bring out the best in us. It brings out the worst in us. We'll talk about that in a moment. And we just keep sinning and sinning. If you think for a moment God's going to close the books and say, hey, let this one pass, they didn't want to be married to the law. You're dreaming. You will give an account. And it's not going to be good because if you wait till then, the Bible is so clear a fact, you will be placed in a lake of fire and brimstone that will burn forever and ever and ever, eternal death, where you could have had eternal life. So, all right, Jeff, uh, let's go back. Woman in a marriage that's bad, what's her options? She wants to get married to somebody else, what's her options? One option. You know what it is? She has to wait till death legally separates her from her husband. Can't just say, hey, I, I just want out. No, you break the bonds 
of marriage. You're breaking the laws of marriage. Now, you can do that physically, but you'll be titled something according to verse 3. And so just as a woman in a bad marriage has to wait until death breaks that union, so the sinner who's in a bad relationship with the law must stay in in that union. Listen, lost person, you have to stay married to the law until death occurs. You say, what does that mean? Death must occur. Death has to occur. And when death occurs, then you're released from the law. You say, well, is there any hope of whatever this is talking about? I guess I have to die physically. No, listen, there's a lot of people all around here. You know what happened? Death has occurred. And this is going to get real tricky, and I don't have the ability to explain it. I'm going to trust the Holy Spirit to do this. For those of us, and I'm in this number, who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. I did this as a nine-year-old boy. Had no clue of all of this at the time. All I knew is Jesus died for my sins. I was on my way to hell. God said if I put my faith and trust in Jesus, I would never go to hell. So I trusted him that night, and I've been saved ever since. Anybody who's done that, death has occurred. You say, how did death occur? Look at verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law. How? When? Where did I do this? Through the body of Christ. We died through the body of Christ. Boy, I've hit that every week, haven't I? In Christ. In Christ. God made a law that when Jesus died on a cross 2,000 years ago, if I put, listen, if you've never done this, you can do it right now. You don't have to wait to the end of the service. You don't have to talk to me or anyone else after the service. You can hear this right now. What Jesus did on the cross was enough to pay for your sins. And the Bible says to us in Ephesians and here in Romans, if you put your faith in Jesus, you're actually placed somehow spiritually in Christ that everything that he does counts for you. And so he died. And that means that you died on the cross spiritually. God counts that as your death. And oh, by the way, he came back from the dead. And there's a reason for that because he wants us to marry him. I'm going to get real subtle for just a second. Look at verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died into the law through the body of Christ. Catch these next two words. So that. So that. Why did Jesus do that for us? So that. Here comes the subtlety. Boy, I hope at least half of you get it. We were not just released from the law to be single. You say, Jeff, I'm in this bad relationship with the law. It's perfect and righteous and holy and good, and I am just keep breaking it. It's not good. And along comes Jesus and says, I see you're in a bad relationship. If you'll put yourself in me, I'll die on the cross, and that'll count as your death, and you'll be broken from laws. Remember, anyone who dies is no longer subject to those binding laws, and you'll be released from your marriage to the law. That would be great if that's all he did. You know what that would mean? It would mean Jesus saying, I see you're in a bad relationship. I died for you. You'll not go to hell. Yes! Yes, I don't have to go to hell! Jesus died for me and it counts as my death and I'm broken from the law. I'll never be judged by the law. Thank you. That would be great. But do you know there's something else? The Bible in verse 4 says, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. The point being, you say, okay, bad relationship, single. I'd rather be single than stay in this bad relationship. Great. But what if there's this awesome, glorious, fulfilling second marriage? That's what Christ is offering you. He says, I did that not only to free you from that, but to marry you to myself. Hold your spot here. Look over to Ephesians chapter 5. This is the classic passage on marriage. Ephesians 5. We'll not dissect it, but we'll read it. Ephesians 5, verse 24, now as the church, he's showing an analogy how husbands and wives, I said earlier, it's a picture of God's relationship. Here it is. Now as the church submits to Christ, we're the wife, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Real clear in verse 22 and 23, shed more light on that. The wife's role in the marriage. Verse 25, though, here comes the words to the husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Right, when she's lovely, I'll love her. No, love your wives as Christ loved the church. We weren't lovely and he loved us anyway. That's not the condition. The condition is unconditional. You said till death do us part, richer for poorer, better for worse. Yeah, we all like richer. We all like better. This says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. And he gave himself up for her. Christ saw his bride married to the law and he saw the judgment of God that was coming and our would-be husband jumped in the way. He gets killed in the activity and he says, now that I've died, you die in me and I'm coming back to life and you'll be raised to life. Two things happen and now you and I can be married and we'll have this fulfilling, glorious second 
marriage. That's what happened to me in 1979. I had no idea what this stuff meant then, and I'm still learning it now. Verse 26. Why did he do this? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Why did Christ do this? So we could live lawless, sinful lives? No. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she, the church, his wife, might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. You love your body, guys. Of course we do. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes just as Christ does the church. Why does he love us that way? Because we're members of his body. And then here's what Jesus had to say. This is Paul playing off of what Christ said and what was said in the Old Testament. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. This this mystery is profound. And I'm saying it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. I'm just going to cut to the chase. You ready? I was born in this world unknowingly married to the law. I was a horrible spouse. The law was always right, and I always messed it up. And yet we weren't good for each other. But Christ died for me and paid for my sin. I put my faith in him, and as a result of that, I am freed from the law of marriage to the the law of God, the, the commandments, and now I'm free to be married to Christ, and everything's new. Listen carefully. Our second husband, Jesus Christ, is far better to us and for us than our first husband, the law. You say, man, this guy sounds like he's against the law. He sounds like he's up there talking bad about the law of God. He's talking bad about the Old Testament. No, I'm not. I'm saying our sin nature was toxic with the law. Jesus is a better husband. How? Write this down. The law, what kind of husband is the law? Demanding. Strict. What kind of husband is Jesus? Loving. Loving. What kind of husband is the law? The law is broken by us over and over. Jesus is broken for us. The law, by the way, is unyielding. It is unyielding. It doesn't budge. I can't move. This is the line. I demand perfection. Jesus is forgiving. I forgive you. I love you. I am broken. You broke the law. I'll be broken To make up for your breaking of the law. The law is condemning. What kind of husband is the law? It's right. It's holy. It's good. But it's condemning. It just keeps beating us down. And it's true. Jesus. And here's the key to verse 6. Jesus is improving. He improves us. The law was never designed to improve us. The law is designed to show us our sin. Jesus now. He actually improves us. The law captivates us. Jesus liberates us. He liberates you from the law, not to a new set of rules, but to a relationship with him. He's a better husband. And that brings us to our third point. Not only is there a principle of law and a promise of life from death, but there's a purpose, and the purpose is of bearing fruit. The purpose is of bearing fruit. I'm particularly focused on the second part of verse 4, but we'll read... Down to verse 6 again. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. So that. Why did he die for us? So that we may belong to another. We want to be remarried to him. He'll be our second husband. To him who's been raised from the dead. Why did he do that? Watch. In order that we may bear fruit. So that's the purpose. That we'll bear fruit. Not to live lawlessly, but to bear fruit. Verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh. I want to stop right there. You hear that phrase, the flesh. And you say, Jeff, so... Is our, I'm still living in the flesh. Jeff, you just smacked your hand. It's flesh. I guess flesh is evil. Your body is not automatically sinful. First John, John says, a test of true faith, a person must believe that the Christ has come in the flesh. So Jesus had a body of flesh. So you say, what's Paul saying? Do you know the word flesh, this phrase, in the flesh, has like three uses? Here's a couple. One does have to do with actual flesh, but what's Paul talking about here? Catch it. Say, Jeff, what's this flesh talking about? While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. What's that all about, this in the flesh? What Paul means is, by the flesh, means it's that part of us, that sinful part of our nature that answers to the seduction of sin. Sin entices. 
our fleshly nature, our sinful flesh, responds to that. I like sin. And we're drawn away from that. And Paul says, our former marriage to the law, knowing the laws of God, doesn't stop us from sinning. It actually arouses our sin. God's good command is not enough to offset. Now that I know what God likes and doesn't like, I'm going to stop doing the the wrong things. I'm going to start doing the right things. No, you didn't either. You didn't, I didn't either. We couldn't. Look at verse 5, has a phrase. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members. What is that, our sinful passions? They're aroused. I think it means our rebellious nature. You say, rebellious nature. Chapter 5 of Romans says we were the enemies of God. It's real simple, guys. God, you, you wouldn't say it, but it's in you. I don't like you telling me what to do. I actually resent you telling me what to do. One of your notes is the following. What he means by the law arouses our sinful passions in our flesh means the restrictions of the laws of God only incite an unbeliever. That was me before age nine. It incites an unbeliever's rebellious nature to do the forbidden thing. Guys, our flesh is so twisted that the very fact that something is on a list of forbidden things, that makes me want to do it. I want to do it now. You know what I've thought of? Some of you have been over to the house and you've met Harley the dog, right? You know who Harley the dog is. Some of you haven't been there yet. We'll get you over soon. Uh, we usually lock him away until we find out, hopefully, you're like, oh, I don't mind let him out. And if we let him out, he loves everybody. He's the sweetest little thing. But he's got another nature inside. Harley loves attention. He loves rubs. He loves food more than anything, all right? But he also has this rebellious nature. And if Jonathan, particularly Jonathan, leaves his door open, Harley loves to go get socks. And he knows socks are off limits. But Harley doesn't just sit in Jonathan's room tearing. It's not, we never go in there and say, oh, he's ripped another sock apart, hidden away in the room. No, it's a game. He knows socks are off limits. And so what does he do? If he's not getting attention, here he comes prancing out. And he starts literally using his nose and his teeth. He starts flipping the sock up in front of us. And so we've learned, don't even acknowledge him, just keep watching the game. Harley, what you got, buddy? (laughs) And he's got it there, and if you get up to go get a drink, he grabs it and off he runs. He wants the chase. I know I'm not supposed to have this, and that makes me want to have the socks. I got to have the socks. And the longer we ignore him, it just tears him up. He starts flipping it more and more. He wants us to come after him so he can run under the coffee table knowing that we can't really and he's at the advantage. And he's quick. He's he's, he's chubby, but he's quick. (laughs) Knowing it's off limits, that makes me want to do it. Can I illustrate this for you? Third commandment, what is it? Thou shalt not take. Third commandment, thou shalt not take. Somebody with confidence. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. See if you catch this. Is the third commandment the chicken or the egg? Because I don't know. I wonder. I wonder, did mankind blaspheme the name of God more before he gave the law 3,400 years ago? Or more after hearing it? Was it, man, they're blaspheming my name so much, I need to tell them I don't like that. Oh, God doesn't like it when we take his name in vain. We'll stop. Or is it the chicken? Or is it the egg? You say, what's what's the difference? I think, I know this happens. There are people who realize God doesn't like his name taken in vain. That makes me want to do it. And they just start blaspheming the name of Jesus and God and Lord. And if they find out you're a Christian on the job and you don't like it, they can kind of tell. And they're going to start stoking it a little more. Because apparently God doesn't like it and you don't like it because he doesn't like it. And that makes me want to do it more. That's rebellion. That's sinful passion. The law just stirs it up. Now that I know how I can dig at God. Here's another one. First commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods. Second, don't make any graven images. Don't have idols. We love idols. By the way, all of us love idols. And it's going to come out in about two more chapters. It's coming. So what do you mean? About two more chapters. I hope it doesn't happen, but there will be a potential. Several people are going to go, Yeah, that looks like that's saying that. But I don't like that. I don't like the God of the Bible. I like the one I've envisioned in my mind. 
and you better not say what that's saying. And so I don't like it, and I might even leave. We love our own man-made gods. And God says, don't you make up your own. But I, got, I want one that fits my ideals. Let the word of God say what it says. Our job is just to accept it. You say, what if I don't like it? You might not like some things about God. There's some things about God I don't like. But they're the fact. They're the truth. Look at verse 6. Coming down the home stretch. But now. So we're in this marriage to the law. And it just stirs up. The more God says not do, that makes us want to do. Parents, you ever seen this? You ever seen a young person like they're nice to everybody else except their parents? You know why? Because you represent God's authority and here really is what, it's this simple. I don't like you, God, telling me what to do and they represent you. Hey, here's a guy on Friday night, he's fine. You put him in a uniform, a law officer uniform on Saturday and all of a sudden, I don't like that guy. Why? Because you represent the authority of God over me and I don't want to submit. We are rebellious by nature. So verse 6, Paul says, but now that we're Christian, we've been released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. Released. Hey, that means we can do anything we want. We can do the things that the law forbids. No. Watch, watch what the whole verse says. Now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit. Here's what's being emphasized. Not only are we released from the law, its penalties and punishments and its strictness of rules and its demands. We're released from that. But catch this, this is a key. You're released to Christ. It's the same transaction. Literally, boom, boom. It happens like that. At the same moment you're released from the law, you're married to Christ and it's for fruit. Now that we serve Him in the newness of the Spirit. 2 Corinthians, can we have that verse please? 2 Corinthians, look at that. For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin. Who knew no sin? Jesus knew no sin. Why did God do this? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's not, hey, I'm married to Jesus. I'll just go live sinful life. No, we're, we're put in Christ to become the righteousness of God. Not on your screen, but hear this. Ephesians chapter 6. I'm sorry, Ephesians 2, verse 10. Hear this, Christian. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're not released from the law to live lawlessly. Say, "Uh uh-oh, pastor, there you did it. You just did it. You just put us right back under the law. No, what I'm talking about is if you really get married to Christ, you'll have spiritual fruit that shows you were married to Christ. Jesus is a better husband to the law than the law. You know what verse 6 is teaching? We're better wives to Jesus than we ever were to the law. You ever seen that? You ever seen a husband, a wife, and then they split up? And he may not say it out loud, but when he sees her around town, or they're exchanging the kids, this starts, he starts thinking this. You got a gym membership now? Yeah, I'll go to the gym. Okay. I see the gym memberships working. Got a new wardrobe. I do. I see you're fixing all up these days. I am. And you're smiling all the time. Kind of confident, I guess. I'm just saying. You got a bounce in your step. I'm just saying. You were never that way with me. To which she says, you never brought that out in me. Hey, I'm just saying, now you're with that guy? You're like all changed. And like, I'm just saying, I never got that. Yeah, uh, this guy brings it out in me. You know what the law says? I'm glad for the change, but you were never that way with me. You never lived like that when you were married to me. To which we respond, yeah, Jesus brings out the best in me. There's a big debate on verse 6. So that we serve in the new way of the Spirit. Some say, is the Spirit there small s, meaning the intention of the law? Or is it a capital s, meaning we don't serve in the old way of the, of the written code, code. We serve in this, the Holy Spirit. Listen, listen, listen. This is important. It's the same. You say, is it capital Spirit? Is it the Holy Spirit? Or is it the intention, the Spirit? Man, you're missing the whole Spirit of the message. Are you going to live by the spirit of the law? What, the intentions of the law? It's both. The New Testament believer 
is equipped with the Holy Spirit of God to be able to do all that God intends. A Christian who is filled with the Spirit of Christ will delight and and desire to fulfill the true meaning of the laws of God and not just the external things. Wearsby put it so much better than I can. It's your next to the last note. Write it down. He says, under law, no enablement was given. There's no enablement there. God's commandments were written on stones and then read to people. That's cold. It's true. It's accurate. It's godly. It's holy. It's pure. Here's the rules. Here's the law. Written on stone. Read them to people. Doesn't work. Doesn't make a change in us. He says, but under grace, God's word is written in our hearts. Last week I used this phrase, God changes our want to. Holy Spirit comes living inside of us. A few weeks ago I used an illustration. If I could have the spirit of a lion in me, literally the king of the jungle, if a lion spirit lived in me, it would change my desires. If I went to the zoo, all of a sudden I'm looking at the zebras and the, and the, uh, and the giraffes and I'm, I'm climbing the fence. My actions have changed. My desires have changed. Why? Because the spirit of a lion is in me. When a person becomes a Christian, God's Holy Spirit comes in them and now they want to obey God. They want to please God, not for a list of rules and regulations, to keep from going to hell but because I love God the Holy Spirit's put love for God in me and love for my fellow man and now I want to please him love motivates us my last thought before we close our eyes serving God in the new way of the Holy Spirit is what's normal it's to be expected I really hope you catch what I'm about to say. I imagine that the teaching of Romans 6 that we hit last month, that teaching on how, listen, not my words, God's words, Christians will not have sin reign over them. So I'm teaching up here, sin will not. Don't let sin reign because sin will not. Sin cannot reign over Christians. I've got a sneaking suspicion that that caused some of my listeners, whether here or on the internet, to take a look at their life in light of that scripture. I think this happened. It does say that. But what about when I, in that time, and you know what it made you do? It made you go home or maybe sitting in a service and literally some some of you have sat there and thought, am I really saved? Am I, am I really saved? Do I know for sure? Because this is, that is what he's saying. It's exactly right. He's not twisting it. I've never seen it that way. Sin will not reign over us because it cannot. We died to sin. We can no longer wallow in sin. We are not to let it. We're supposed to be presented. Am I really saved? And somebody may hear that and say, Jeff, I just want to tell you, you're exactly right. You're making Christians question their salvation. So I hope you're happy. You've got Christians questioning whether they're going to heaven or not. And they're evaluating their life. To which I would say, that's not my main goal, nor was it. But, that's okay. I'm fine with it. Say, really? You want Christians doubting? No. You need to work through the struggle, because here's what I've concluded. Real faith withstands scrutiny. Real faith withstands scrutiny. And I've also learned this. Yeah, but what if my life, I'm not talking about being sinless. We never have. We've hammered that. We will never be sinless in this life. But if you don't see a change, you ought to be concerned. You say, I've been saved 25 years, and my moral life has gone like that. You didn't get saved 25 years ago. You say, Jeff, you're sure you're comfortable with people questioning this? Yeah, real faith stands to scrutiny. And here's the last thought. God's internal power will bring about authentic, lasting change far more than the law's external pressures ever could. So here's my point. You will change. Sin will not reign over you because sin can. I believe Romans 6, and I'm okay if Christians are grappling with it. We need to. And once you've grappled with it and say, I know I am, not just have one day, I am trusting Jesus, then hang on for the ride. You're going to become more like Christ. Would you bow your heads just for a moment? Let me start. I'm going to flip my anticipated order. If you're here this morning and you call yourself a Christian, so put yourself in that category or not. You say, oh, I'm a Christian. 
As I think back over Romans 6, the Bible very clearly says, sin will not reign over us. Listen carefully. We will never be sinless in this life. But what that means, biblically, what we've been learning and what we're going to find going all the way into chapter 8, here's reality, not my truth. This is what God's Word is teaching. Listen, if you really got saved, you, you call yourself a Christian, here's what's going to happen. The Holy Spirit makes us love God. We love Jesus, never like we should, nor like we want to. But you'll love God. You'll love the Holy Spirit. You'll love the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we start sinning, I can tell you from experience, I start getting convicted. Sin's just not that fun. It's pleasure for a season. But man, it's just not fun afterward. I'm not allowed. I am not allowed to wallow in sin. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What shall we say then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? By no means. So I want to ask you, Christian, you say you're a Christian. Very simple. Does your life withstand the scrutiny of that doctrine? If so, then I know this happens. Two things I know. If so, you love God. You do. You love Him. You say, but I don't love Him like I should. You love Him, though. And He convicts us when we start straying. So I'm just curious this morning. Is there a Christian in the house? You say, yeah, the actual the evidence that I am saved is that when I have a sin and I know I've wounded the one I love and who loves me, I just want to get it right. Heads bowed, eyes closed. I'm going to ask no one looking around. Here's a fact. I got to raise my hand. The last day, easy. But I'm wondering, am I the only one or is there somebody here say, Jeff, right now while you're talking, the Holy Spirit is putting his hand on something in my life. And here's the deal. It's not just fear of a punishment. I know I've offended the God who loves me and the God I love. And that is true in my life. And in fact, I'm not just raising my hand that I'm a Christian. God's putting his hand on something in my life this morning. It may be small, it may be external, it may be thought and attitude, something you looked at, something you listened to, something you've been saying. I'm just curious. No one looking. Anybody, you raise your hand, you say, oh, I know I'm a Christian. The Holy Spirit's putting his hand on something in my life right now. I see that. That one back there. More? Anybody? Just raise your hand up and down. Thank you. Holy Spirit's putting his hand on something in my life. And it's evidence that I'm a Christian. To every one of us, I ask this question. When did you receive salvation? When was it? See, I can't remember the day. I don't remember the date. What time of life was it that you specifically, intentionally received salvation from Christ? When? If you can't think of one, there's a strong chance. You're married to the law. You are married to the law and you're bound by its rules and its punishment. I'm released from the law because I put my faith in Jesus. You say, man, it's a lot of theology today and I don't even understand it all. I know. You can understand it all, but if you can understand this, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. That's coming. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Bible says whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The Bible says, God, listen, God so loved the world. He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever, that's you, whosoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. That is a promise and God can't lie. I did that in 1979. Somebody asked me, Jeff, how do you know you're going to heaven? I was asked that just this week and I said, I know I am. I don't have to wait to find out. I know I'm going to heaven because God can't lie. If I go to hell... God and I will have a conversation. I will call him a liar because I'm trusting Jesus and Jesus only. Have you ever done that? If you've never done that, I'm going to invite you to do it right now. I can tell you specific words to say, but if you just say them, it's just words. I'm going to invite you right now. Hear again that promise. Whosoever will call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
And it isn't out loud with your vocal cords. It's you right where you're sitting saying, God, do it. Do it. I beg you for your sake. God, I am a sinner. I'm sorry. I have broken the law. I've offended you. Tell him. Admit it. God, I've offended you. You're here in this room. I'm talking to you. God, I've offended. I've broken your laws. I deserve everything you're going to give me. But Lord, this guy, I don't even know who he is. He said Jesus' death on the cross was enough to pay for all my sin. And it sounds true. Something, something is telling me that's the truth and I believe it. And so God, if you'll have me, by the way, I know he will. You say, God, please forgive me. I put my faith in Jesus. I receive your salvation. You promised I receive it right now. I'm taking you up on eternal life. God, as we stand and sing and close our service, thank you. Thank you, God, that when I was in a bad marriage and just mucking it up, you sent your son to die on a cross and pay for my sins so I could be released from punishment. Thank you, God, that he took all the punishment. And then, Lord, you went the next step and said, not only are you going, not going to hell, but, God, you said, I get to go to heaven because I'm in Christ. You married me and bound me permanently to Jesus. Thank you for the changes you're making in our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Let's stand and sing this morning. The altar's available. If anybody needs to get something right with the Holy Spirit, put his finger on something.